listening to Gleaning, the monthly newsletter from Strategies at Work, podcast edition, July 1st, 2020. Today's episode is titled, Workplace Ordination. This morning, we want to talk about disorder to order and great growth out of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Well, Acts chapter 6 is a very interesting chapter. The, um, the early church has been going through a number of, of tests over the last few chapters, been uh, tested by the religious leaders, and now they're going to be tested internally by disorder in the community. And the book of Acts is, um, is a progressive book. It's a book of unfolding revelation as the early ecclesia is coming to understand what it means to be an ecclesia and what it means now that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. How do we understand this? What should be our, our thought processes here as we go through this truth about the Christ? So disorder to great growth is the topic this morning. Now, as we talk about, about the book of Acts, we want to keep in mind that there, the, the church is is probably the most unique church that's ever existed. There's probably never been, or at least I'm not aware in church history of a time when we have a local ecclesia like this. This is a community of believers that is very biblically literate. And at least today, that is a rare thing. We are moving into a time in the world today where biblical literacy is becoming less and less. So we're increasingly being, uh, becoming more biblically illiterate. That is a far cry from this community. It was a biblically literate community committed to the word. They believed the word. There was no skepticism. They absolutely believed the word. And they were so committed to it, they were willing to sacrifice to obey it. Now, they didn't do it perfectly. But they, that, the reason they were gathered on Pentecost and particularly the people that were out-of-towners, the Hellenistic Jews, the people who had traveled long distances to celebrate the day of Pentecost, the reason they did that is they were committed to obeying the Jewish festivals. That's part of the law. So they expressed that. Well, today we don't have that kind of commitment and that kind of dedication to the Word of God, and we don't even know the Word of God very well, and increasingly people don't find any value in it. So we're living in a very different time from what was uh, experienced in the first century. And arguably, as you look through church history and say, has there ever been another community like this? I think you're hard pressed to find anything like it. Nevertheless, even though this was a, an incredibly uh, rich community in many ways, they had come to the conviction that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. They, in fact, that's what Paul's, uh, Peter said to them with certainty that, that you can know this for a fact. And they were so unified in mind and heart that they were able to use their resources to support the will of God so easily without effort. So they were, they were just really committed to walking this out. They still had internal problems. And Acts 6 is going to be a record of their first internal problem and how they went about solving that internal problem. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, the disciples were increasing in numbers. 
there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timion, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So let's break this down a bit here. First, I want to point out that what we have here is an example of kingdom work. And kingdom work is bringing order out of chaos. There was chaos in the food distribution. Now, what, what does that reveal to us about where these people are? Well, as mature as they were in terms of their knowledge of scripture, as committed as they were, as sacrificially uh, willing to, to live out their commitment as they were, they still weren't, weren't fully sanctified. You see, salvation is a three-step process. There's regeneration, which happens as the sovereign work of the Spirit. There's sanctification, which, which is the sovereign work of the Spirit working with us. We work out together. In other words, Paul said this well in Philippians chapter 2. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure. So there's this synergism between the Spirit and our, ourselves, as we are working out the sanctification process, we're empowered by the Spirit to do it and directed by the Spirit to do it, but it's a progressive process that goes on until we are taken into the presence of the Lord when we're glorified. So in the sanctification process here, they were not mature enough to be able to avoid problems in the food distribution. So. There need to be a solution. Kingdom work always finds solution to sin problems. That's what kingdom work does. It brings order out of chaos. Sin produces chaos, and the kingdom of God brings order. It brings divine order, not just any order, but specifically divine order. And it's God's will that everyone be given the food that they need to exist because food is, is something God's provided for us so that we can then serve him. That's the purpose of food. The reason we eat should not be to satisfy our fleshly desires, our gluttony. It should be so we can be strengthened in body so that our body then can support the call of God on our lives. So that's what was going on here is the apostles recognized it's out of order for the food distribution to not be done correctly. We need to put it in order. That would be kingdom living. The second thing I want to point out to you is the word diakonia. I've got it here highlighted uh, in the screen. Uh, I'm going to just take my pointer here and point to it. Here it is here. It appears uh, twice in a noun form and once in a verb form. So in verse one, uh, it's translated daily distribution. 
In verse 2, it's translated uh, waiting on tables. And that's the verb form, diakoneo. And then in verse 4, it's translated ministry, diakoneo. So you can see it's it's translated different ways in, in the two noun forms and the verb form as well. So what does this word mean? Well, this is Strong's uh, number 1248. And you can look that up and you can see that one of the definitions of diakonia is those who execute the commands of another. Diakonia is referring to a function. It's not an office. Now, sadly, today we've turned ministry into an office, which is, I don't know scripturally how you can support that, because scripture seems to give us the sense that diakonia is a function. And it's actually a function that we're all called to. And this is illustrated here. Because you see, they're talking about two different situations here that are both called diakonia. One is the one we would expect would be diakonia. That is the ministry of the of prayer and, and the word where you're teaching the word. Okay, That's verse four. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Teaching the word is a way that we, we execute diakonia because we have a call to teach the word. We see that in the, what we call the Great Commission. We are called to train people to obey the word of God, to obey the commands of Christ. So that is a mandate that the apostles had that we believe passes on to us to continue to do what they were mandated to do. So certainly the apostles here are doing it. And that is that's the distribution of spiritual food. But we also have the distribution of physical food here called diakonia in verse one. This is where the Hellenistic Jews, their their widows were being overlooked in the daily diakonia. You see, this is now literal food distribution, but it's still the function of executing the commands of Christ by providing the physical food that we need to be able to do what God has called us to do. So, it's a very interesting contrast to see that diakonia is not limited to spiritual activity. It embraces physical activity as well. In fact, we know this, that, that all calls of God are, that are, are true licit calls are to licit work assignments, and there's no limit. We each have a call to specific work assignment, and our jobs to discern that call and to do that call. So the next thing is how would they discern, you know, how to assign this ministry of food distribution? Who should do that? Well, they use the C4 principle, which all of us know that principle. That's the principle that we work on and try to teach others frequently. It's calling, character, capability, commissioning. And so you see that shown up here in verse three. So the apostles immediately said, in verse two, it was not right, you know, for them to stop their ministry, which tells you right then and there, you know, you need to stay in your lane. Whatever your ministry is, you stay in that, even when you see another ministry not being handled correctly. What you do when you don't see that that handling correctly, you find the people that are called to that ministry, and a tool to help you find those people will be the C4 principle. And the first element of C4 is calling. This is specifically what's in your heart, the call of God that's in your heart. The second element is character. And that is, uh, that's basically good reputation, having a, 
great, great ability to walk in the power of the spirit, full of the spirit, having a good reputation. And I've underlined these things. Here's good reputation here and full of the spirit. That's the character. Here's the select from among you, the seven men. That's the calling. And you can see in this case, the emphasis is on the external callers, the men uh, of the community being, being called by the community. The third element of C4 is capability, and that's wisdom. Wisdom is the skill to live life well. Wisdom implies knowledge and then favor to be able to apply that knowledge to make right choices. So that's the capability. The final element of C4 is commissioning, and that shows up in the word appointment. We, we can appoint to this duties. You see, the apostles were going to then ordain these people to the ministry of food distribution. So what they needed the community to do, what the apostles did was deputize the community to identify the men that they believed were the right ones using this principle. Okay, so they would be selecting from the, the community itself. They weren't selecting from just any, anybody. They were looking specifically within the community, finding the people that obviously they saw something of the call of God on them. Then looking at their reputation, are they walking in the spirit? How mature are they? And then looking at what they have skill to do, their abilities. And then when you identify these seven men, bring them to the apostles and the apostles are going to pray over them and basically commission them to this work assignment. So this is how the principle is used. Commissioning to food distribution should be normative. One of the questions that we have to ask as we go through the book of Acts, which again is a, is a book that is a, a transitional book, which means not everything in the book is necessarily prescriptive. We have to look very carefully and see what is prescriptive versus what is just descriptive. Everything is descriptive, but not everything is prescriptive. Prescriptive would mean it would be prescribing how we are to function. So is this principle for us? And my, my answer is yes. If you start looking in scripture, you will see numerous examples of this principle showing up. For example, you'll find it in Exodus 18 in the, the work of administration of justice. You'll find it in construction, qualifying people to build the tabernacle in Exodus 35, 10 through 36, 2. You'll find it in creative artistic work in 1 Samuel 16, 16 to 23, qualifying David to be the, heart, the musician for Saul. You'll find it in leadership and management. Again, a David example in Psalm 78, 70 through 72. Where Jesus, where David was clearly had C4 to be the leader and the manager of the Israelite community. You'll find it in food distribution here and then in church leadership in 1 Timothy 3 and 1st in Titus chapter 1. You'll find that the church leadership should be the traits for church leadership can be categorized into the C4 principle. So you see numerous examples in scripture here that tell us that this is not only a description of an event that happened, but the C4 principle is designed to be normative for how we function as believers and how we identify the ministries that various people are called to. Now, the fruit of godly order is, is also fascinating. You know, not only did they 
they come come together now and pray over these people and commission them to this work. You see that uh, that happens uh, here in verse six. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. That's what we do when we ordain people. When I was ordained as an elder, they had me come forward. I was in front of the people. So I was standing there and then they had me kneel down and they lay hands on me and they prayed over me and ordained me to be an elder in that community. So that was uh, their commissioning event for that particular part of my life. I minister in that way. So that's this is what they did here for food distribution as well. Now, what happens once they do this? Once they've identified these men that God has called to put things in order that are out of order, kingdom order is going to be administered. Immediately, you have verse seven. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. Now, I want you to notice that term greatly in number. Now, it's right here in verse seven. I'm highlighting it. Now, if you go back to verse one and read verse one again, it says in those days as the disciples were increasing in number. So there's an increase going on. But then by verse seven, it's greatly increasing in number. Well, the difference between verse one and verse seven is you have put kingdom order into the body in terms of where it had gotten out of order. Now, this is not the first time it had gotten out of order. It got out of order when Ananias and Sapphira tried to lie about their gift to the, to the community. They wanted to give a gift to the community, but they did not represent the gift correctly. And the Holy Spirit took them out. Now, we hope that that's not prescriptive, that if we make a mistake and we sin in some way, then we'll just immediately get taken out. And that that does seem to be the case. You do, you're hard pressed to find another example specifically like Ananias and Sapphira in the rest of Scripture. There's certainly warnings. And there's a that, that and Paul alludes to and this in First Corinthians when he talks about some people who have taken the Lord's Supper with a wrong attitude or wrong motive. And some of them are sick. And maybe even some of them have died. So there's some inference that maybe this has happened other places, but it doesn't seem to be as common. It seems to be more of a fairly unique event to send a signal uh, to the early community, not only the community, but that signal went out to everyone in Jerusalem. They heard about this. It's like this is a serious deal here. So this is this incident in Acts chapter five is the first incident of dysfunction in the body. Now in Acts 6, this is the second incident of dysfunction. And you can see they were able to respond correctly and put the right people in place. And immediately you see a change. You go from growing, increasing the number to greatly increasing the number. And what's fascinating is the last phrase of verse 7. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now that is fascinating. You see the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the first ecclesia were the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests. These were the religious leaders. They were the enemies. They opposed Christ. They opposed him when he was alive. They opposed his followers after he is gone. 
See, so these are these are hard cookies. They're hard people. They don't really have a desire, you know, to to really be obedient. But now these people, all of a sudden, a large group, not a few, a large group. They keep in mind, in mind, Jesus did have a few encounters with the religious leaders. You know, for example, like Nicodemus. He, he And Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, by himself, one person to try to understand more about the kingdom. But now we have here in Acts chapter 6, a large group of priests becoming obedient to the faith. And obedient to the faith means, um, it means obeying, listening with the intent of obeying. That's literally what the word hupakuo means. Hupakuo is a compound word in the Greek language. Uh, Hoop is under, a kuo is listen. So it's listening with a sense of submitting to it, a sense of obeying to it. This is why the translators have translated obedient. It's hearing something. It's not like my children when they were growing up and they would say, I hear you, dad, meaning I'm, I'm listening, but I'm not going to do it. No, this was listening with a full intent to obey. And he's referring to the faith. That is the faith that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the Messiah. So that was, uh, that was big. And what opened the door for these priests and for this greatly great increase, great expansion in the number of disciples was putting C4 order in. C4 order in place is what brought kingdom order to the food distribution, which led to the growth of the community. That is a very important thing to keep in mind. We'll come back to that here in the application. Well, let's just take a moment and talk about some theology. Uh, and let's talk about church growth or what I call um, ecclesiology. That's not what I call it. It's what theologians call it. I'm using their term. Ecclesiology has to do with the study of the nature and structure of the micro and the macro expressions of the ecclesia. And one of the topics of concern in ecclesiology is church growth. Jesus is building his ecclesia. We know that. He told us that he will build his ecclesia. He's doing that through his followers. He didn't do it while he was alive. He prepared his followers who would then do it after he was gone. We're living in the tradition of those followers. If you know the Lord, you're part of his ecclesia. And that has happened through the last 2,000 years through his followers. His followers have continued the, to be the agents to, to serve the growth of the ecclesia that Jesus is doing. Now, one way to define the micro expression of the ecclesia, which is a local expression, is a community and a location that is equally yoked in Christ. Now, how does a community achieve equal yoking in Christ? Well, there are two basic approaches. Uh, there's really a third one. What I'll get to that in a moment. But the two basic approaches are this. One way to connect with <clears throat> is to try to get as many people as possible to come. This is commonly called the seeker-friendly approach. The problem with that approach is that Paul tells us in Romans chapter three, there is no one who seeks God, no, not one. You say, wait a minute, how do you have a seeker-friendly approach if people don't seek God? Well, the only way you can have that is you have to have a way to try to find the people whom the Holy Spirit is working with. Because when the Holy Spirit starts working with someone, the manifestation of that is they begin to show faith in Christ. 
that would be seeker friendly, showing faith in Christ. Because naturally, without being empowered by the spirit, we will not show faith in Christ. We can't choose to show faith in Christ. We don't have the power to do that. So this approach is very problematic, yet this is the common approach, notwithstanding all the problems. Now, the second approach to trying to build an equally yoked community is around the theological unity of the doctrine of the apostles. You remember there were four practices that the first ecclesia engaged in in Acts chapter two. After they they encountered Christ, they were baptized, they came the first ecclesia, they did four things. They were devoted to these four things, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Those are the four key things. So when you become unified around those four things, and particularly around the doctrine of the apostles, now that's, that's, that's definitely a much, much more rich, vibrant approach. That requires much more depth of study and learning and growing doctrinally. But that is the second approach for gathering. Now, there are some that try to art, articulate and argue for a third approach of combining the two. Uh, that's problematic uh, because that's many people would say that they're mutually exclusive. You, you're either going to build wide, which is a lot of go for quantity, or you're going to build deep, which is quality, but you're not going to do both. Well, I think generally that's probably true. I think the bigger a community is, the more likely it is it's pretty shallow. Okay. In fact, the bigger it gets, probably the more shallow it gets. But the, and the smaller it is doesn't mean it's necessarily going to go deeper, but there's an opportunity in a smaller setting to go deeper. And so the, the healthy communities probably tend to be smaller communities that have really sound teaching and accountability to that teaching that enables them to go deeper. So now, how would we, how would we then make these distinctions? How would really support what I'm saying here that I think the second approach of building around theological unity is indeed the best way to build? Well, look at the pattern of Jesus. He focused on 12 people. He spent his whole life basically working with 12 people, a small number of people. And then you look at, at what you have in the New Testament. You see the Apostle Paul. If you, if you go around and start looking at the people he was associated with, he went a lot of places, but he always went with people. And he had two men in particular that he called his spiritual sons, Timothy and Titus. They're the only ones that are called his sons, implying that they carried his heart. So. This is a, these are patterns in Jesus, the Apostle Paul, that seem to suggest that the way forward is always with quality first over quantity. So if you agree that quality trumps quantity in building the microexpression of the ecclesia, how might you do this? Well, one of the principles that you could use to guide you would be the C4 principle. If this principle is the divine tool to discern the call of God on anyone, then it is a, it is a it's an excellent way to start building. Imagine a community where the community was committed to helping everyone in the community find their ministry that God had for them. What is the call of God on your life? Are you called to be a carpenter? Are you called to be a, 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 a cook? Are you called to be a construction worker? Are you called to be a farmer? You know, a businessman? Whatever you're called to, we as a Christian community, we want to help you evaluate that, and then confirm it in you and ordain you to that. 
So when you have a community like that, that community is going to have to go deeper because that's a community that's really trying to get grounded in the word and living by the word. Because the key to the C4 principle is godly character. Godly character requires a lot of teaching and training biblically about how to live in God's universe. So to fulfill the call of God, you've got to have godly character, period. You can have great skill and ability. You can have a heart. You can be commissioned to something. But if you don't have godly character, you're a train wreck. It's just a matter of, you know, how bad the wreck's going to be and when it's going to happen. So we, we've got to be looking to build people up. And only when people have a full, robust C4 going in their life will they be salt and light. That's the only time they're going to be doing that. That's the only way you're going to bear witness to Christ as a community. Otherwise, your community is just going to be in disorder and disarray. So the C4 principle is a powerful tool to help us build great communities, build the communities that God's called us to build. So let me suggest this on the question of whether or not you could build both in terms of quality and quantity. I think if you're building on C4, if that's really the commitment of your community and everyone is really buying into it, it's not lip service, but it's reality. I think you probably can experience what you see in Act 6. You see, as they went deeper at bringing order into their community, getting the right people in the right places, at least for food distribution, that opened the door for growth, increased growth. And even with some of the hardest nuts to crack, you know, religious leaders are sometimes the hardest people to work with. They're in so ensconced in their, their religious paradigm. But even some of those people became obedient to the faith. So interesting how it's couched there, obedient to the faith. They obviously became very committed to what they said they believed. Now, let me just uh, give you a word of application here. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, a man in our community volunteered for a mission trip. And during a church gathering on Sunday evening before he left, the church leaders laid hands on and prayed for him. A few weeks later, he returned from his trip and gave a report to our Sunday evening gathering. The next day, he would return to work as an engineer, but the church leaders did not lay hands on him and pray for him that night. Later, I thought about this and wondered why we had not prayed for him in his role as an engineer. I realized that the actions of the church leaders, which included me, were rooted in a view of ordination, that is commissioning, that's inconsistent with scripture. This view was the that ordination or commissioning is limited to those engaged in church-related activities. Now, where did this come from? Well, this came from Greek dualism. Greek dualism, which rose up 2,500 years ago, comes from Plato. This presumes that intangible, the intangible reality, the non-material reality is superior to the material reality. And it's so superior that the non-material reality is considered good and the material reality is considered bad. Therefore, church work, which is considered to be part of the intangible world, has superior value over all other work, which would be like food distribution or business in some sort. So, for example, the church leaders had no problem ordaining elders and pastors. They did that. I was ordained as an elder. But callings other than that didn't get that kind of recognition. My wife as a teacher, as an administrator, never was ordained. 
I, as a consultant, as a management consultant, you know, I've never been ordained for that work. I've only been ordained as an elder. So you look at that and say, wow, there's something really off here. Because Acts 6 seems to provide us a holistic view of ordination to both church-related work and workplace activities. Both are regarded as ways of serving Christ. This is called ministry. And ministry, remember, is not an office. Ministry is not even a vocation. Ministry is a function. It's where we go, we serve Christ. When I'm in my home, I am to minister. When I am in a workplace environment, I am to minister. If I'm in my community, I'm to minister. Wherever I go, I'm an agent to serve the will and the ways of Christ. So that's that's how we need to begin to think about this. And we need to honor the calls of God to all of these various activities. In this case, you see in Acts 6, there's the call to food distribution was highlighted. It was out of order because we did not have the right people who were assigned, ordained to do that work. And so once they put that in order, that just opened the door now for the for the church, the light of the church to shine brightly. And the growth increased, dramatically increased, greatly increased. And even some of the hardest people to come to bring to Christ came to Christ and became obedient to the faith. So if Acts 6 is prescriptive and directs us to commission to all listed vocations, then all people should be offered the opportunity to be commissioned. They should be offered the opportunity to be ordained to their respective callings. This requires spiritual leaders who recognize the call of God on the lives of people and are willing to affirm that call to a commissioning agent. Commissioning is part of the C4 principle and presumes the ability to discern the other three components in a person, calling, character, and capability. In other words, the the community didn't commission the men to food distribution. The apostles did that. But the apostles delegated to the, the, uh, the community the the responsibility to find who had the heart, who had the character, who had the skill, the calling character, character and capability, who had those three components to do this work. And then the apostles would ordain them and do the fifth one, the commissioning. And then you would have a full C4 principle in play in those seven men to do what God had called them to do. And the church, the ecclesia is affirming the will of God through the commissioning. Now that's a powerful picture of affirmation that we all need. Sadly, for most ecclesiastical leaders, this is a step too far. They can't think beyond the conventional dualistic paradigm. Consequently, those called to work activities outside church work are not supported or valued in their divine callings. This is truly a travesty. May our prayer be for revelation by by the ecclesia leaders to the truth of divine callings to all listed work and conviction of the importance of acknowledging and confirming God's calling on everyone. This is a way to build up the body of Christ, first in quality and then in quantity. And this probably is the only way, only proper way to build. Can we have the grace to see this and the heart then to do it? In Jesus' name, amen.